Hello there, gamer owners. Welcome to another episode of the podcast with me, Sam. Today is another episode of the Monday Mortgage Melt, which is my live Q&A that I do every Monday, although in this instance, it was actually a Tuesday due to illness, over on my Instagram page at the Sam Norris. Do it every Monday at 5pm. Um, you can ask me anything you like concerning, well, to be honest, anything, but usually property finance and property related. Uh, but one question that came up on this particular episode, which I thought was really interesting, was talking all about... Um, tokens, crypto, blockchain, and how that can impact the housing and more importantly, the mortgage market. I get very excited about this particular subject on this podcast. So listen out for that about halfway through, but there's a load of amazing questions on this episode to enjoy. So let's roll. Hello, everybody. How are we doing? Welcome to episode 85 of the Monday Mortgage Mail on a Tuesday. Um, yeah, so you might even be able to hear me. I am a little bit nasally still. Um, I had to postpone yesterday and I don't, I think the only other times that I've ever postponed the Monday mortgage mail has been because either it's my wife's birthday or um, because it's a bank holiday or something like that. This is the only normal Monday that I've ever not done on a Monday. Um, and it was just purely because, I'll be honest with you guys, you would not have wanted to see me. I should have done it. I could have done it on like one of those audio rooms on, on Twitter. Um, but, but you would not have wanted to see me. I looked gross, even more gross than I do now. And I still look a bit gross. Um, and you'll see, I'm actually sitting down. <laughs> Usually I do this standing up. But this this cold, this bug, whatever it is, this man flu has completely knocked me sideways. Um, it's not uh, coronavirus. You'll be very happy to know. I have been testing myself and I'm okay. But I am sitting down because I just thought I just need to have a bit more of a chill than I normally do. So um, thank you very, very much for being patient, for sticking with me. Um, hopefully today will be worth the wait and we'll have some awesome questions which I will be able to answer for you. Now, before we get into it, just as a bit of a heads up, that um, now, as long as, fingers crossed, Instagram allows me to, because sometimes it can be a bit temperamental, you can, if you miss any of this or you're halfway through and you, you know, you, you have to rush off somewhere, you can not only re-watch the Monday Mortgage Melt afterwards on IGTV or Instagram television or whatever they call it now. Um, but if you want to do this hands-free, because I know when you've got your, your phone in front of you and you, you've got to watch it, you can't do other stuff, um, you can actually listen on the Game of Loans podcast now. So I actually rip the audio from these and, and actually release it as a um, as a Game of Loans podcast episode. So as long as, fingers crossed, Instagram allows me to do so, you'll be able to listen along on the Game of Loans podcast now. If you haven't uh, subscribed to the Game of Loans podcast, then please do so. And if you've enjoyed any of those episodes, don't forget forget to leave a five-star review as well, guys. Really, really helps me grow that podcast. I want to obviously get it to as many people as I possibly can. But enough of the uh, of the the marketing of my own products <laughs> um obviously today terrific tuesday talk this is what we're here for today as tx has has said as usual he's great with his alliteration almost as good as me um today we are here to answer your questions uh, so generally speaking a lot of the time it's to do with property finance because that is what i do and i'll come on to that in a sec um so anything to do with mortgages bridging finance development finance commercial mortgages anything like that is 
definitely open uh, for any type of question you want to ask me. If you want to also ask me anything to do with property investing in general, investing in general, running a business. Um, I've had, we've had questions recently about uh, running businesses and my philosophies on that. Um, and we've also had people ask me about how to become a mortgage broker, which is incredible because I can't imagine anyone wanting to do that. But there we go. But you may well be sitting there thinking, okay, Sam, that's all well and good, but um, why am I going to waste my time listening to your um, to the answers to your to the question? Um, why am I going to listen to your answers to my question? There we go. I've got it out at the end. Well, um, I am Sam. I'm the owner of Grand Union Finance, a specialist um, of property finance brokerage. We specialise in helping investors and developers raise funds for their projects, be it a buy-to-let uh, property to add to their portfolio, all the way up to multi-unit development sites and commercial sites and all this kind of lovely stuff. And I've been doing that now for 15 years, would you believe? Not with Grand Union, but uh, Grand Union is going to be two years old uh, in the not so distant, distant future. Um, but over the years, I've worked for lots of really, really great companies where I've had the opportunity to really learn my trade. So hopefully, um, anything that you've got to ask me, I will have the answer for. Um, Diva, thank you very much. Yes, uh, feeling feeling a little bit better. Maybe I'm just, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I took a lot of Sudafed before I jumped on. So maybe I'm, I'm going to run out of steam in about 20 minutes time. Who knows? It might not be the longest <laughs> Monday mortgage melt we've ever done. Um, but a little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. If you do have a question for me, please don't put it in the comments um, because what happens is, as you can see, people are coming in, they're making comments, they're saying uh, that they're so happy that I'm feeling better. I'm happy that I'm feeling a little bit better, although still a little bit rough, as you can hear. Um, so what will happen is you put your question into the comments and it will just get pushed up and up and up and up and eventually we will lose it. But so if you want to ask me a question, put it down here, put it into the little question uh, box and that will allow me to uh, bring it up on the screen in a second, you'll see, um, but also um, it means we won't lose it through people coming in and, and the, the comment pushing back. So um, comment being pushed back, sorry, I should say. So um, yeah, so hopefully, We'll have, a, we'll have a little good session. Now, before I jump into the questions, um, I'm just, I just wanted to relay something. I had a really interesting conversation with a client earlier on today. And I realized that, um, and this was a question that was asked of me by what I would, I would have thought quite an established developer. And so it, it, it dawned on me that if I've got somebody that's up here that is asking me this kind of kind of question. It's probably an important one that maybe some people don't know necessarily know the answer to. And it was all to do with exiting a development. Um, now, most of you will be aware there's probably two different ways in which you can exit a development project, and that's, we call it either build to sell or build to rent. And effectively what that means is, are you gonna develop and sell it at the end? Or are you going to develop it and then you're going to actually remortgage it and rent it yourself, add it to your portfolio? Um, we get a lot more build, build to rent now than I've ever done. Back in the day, it used to all be build to sell on the development side. Money will be going into buying property to, uh, on standard buy to lets on the other side. But we are seeing a lot of build to rent um, at the moment. And when it comes to build to rent, when it comes to looking at um, refinancing whatever it is you're building on the back end, it's really important that you understand a few things about mortgage lenders and their criteria, specifically on two separate things, which is to do with titles um, and to do with exposure limits. Okay, so this ex this example we were looking at earlier was where we had a, a big block um, and it was going to be converted into multiple flats. Okay, so we call that a multi-unit block. Now, when it comes to um, how it is seen by a lender, it very much depends on whether or not 
um, either the free the freehold is all intact and the, that's it. It's just one freehold title. You own it, and you've got all these individual flats in in or apartments inside. We call them units, hence multi-unit freehold block. Um, in which case, we'll get a specialist mortgage to go to be basically the security is the freehold. So the whole whole block. Um, is the security for one mortgage. We can do that with some stat, like quite relatively normal residential lenders. Um, and we can also do that with commercial lenders, depending on how many units there are in the block. Um, and generally speaking, this is quite a normal thing to do. And what this uh, particular uh, future client or developer was asking me was all to do with um, whether or not they should um, keep it as it is in terms of keeping it as one freehold with lots of units within it, or whether to split the titles and register the individual leasehold titles for each flat. Now, as I, as I said to him, and I'll repeat to you guys, it's um, there's a couple of things that are really important that we um, that we understand when we're doing this, which is number one, um, basically how lenders will will, will view these, um, and effectively also what the value value of the, uh, the assets will be and how we will calculate that. And then also, as I said before, exposure limits. I'll come on to that in a sec. The first thing we need to look at is, is it gonna be worth more as one freehold block altogether or an, an amount, you know, amalgamation of all the individual leasehold uh, units? In my experience, splitting the titles does add value and it adds value overnight as soon as you've got those titles registered you will have value so instead of it being valued as one big freehold it's the aggregate you know the the, the you, you tot up all of the individual values for all the different flats that were the, uh, within the freehold which obviously is of great benefit however we then can't access these multi-unit freehold block mortgages we have to go with a commercial lender if we want one um one mortgage across all of them and some lenders will have exposure limits, which basically means that we, um, a lender may only lend on a certain percentage of the number of, of units within that particular block, which obviously makes it a little bit more um, complicated when trying to exit your development finance or pay back your investor or whatever it might be. So for, as an example, if they were say six um, flats in this block, one lender might say, well, we've got an exposure limit of 50%. And what that means is they will only lend on 50% of the units within that block, which in this case would be three. So great, we've got three mortgages, but what about the other three? We've then got to, we can't access that cheapest lender in the market for those we've got to go with the next lender, which obviously can be quite frustrating um, when we want to try and get the cheapest funding that we can. Also, from a logistical point of view, we've got six individual mortgages that we're arranging rather than the one. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because I thought it was a really interesting conversation I had earlier on and I in my head as I was saying it I thought I'm definitely going to mention that later on because hopefully you guys uh, will find that quite interesting. I'm actually thinking about maybe doing a YouTube video about this to go into a little bit more detail so watch this space for that. Um, so guys if you do have any questions for me please, as I said before, put them into the question box down below. If you're enjoying this so far, keep hitting the little heart button in the bottom right-hand corner because it tells Instagram we're doing a good job. Hopefully it'll bring some more people in and we can get a whole load more questions. But we have got a few questions that have come in already. So I am gonna click on the little question mark and see what we've got. Um, so Deeraz ha has asked, uh, can you uh, mortgage land that has advertising hoardings 
Wow, what a question to kick us off with. Um, do you know what? Um, I am absolutely certain that you can, but you probably can't get a mortgage on them. I imagine what you're, you're thinking about is you've got, you've got some land and there's some hoardings on there, which obviously can be removed, um, but they are generating income. Now, my gut is telling me, I understand the principle of it. You've got some, you've got an asset that's generating you income, essentially, but you've got to see it from a, a commercial lender's perspective, which is ultimately what we're looking at here, um, is how good of an asset actually is it and how uh, risky is it to them? They're going to suggest that it's pretty risky because if if those uh, hoardings get knocked over, if they get taken out, if somebody steals them because, you know, <laughs> they're not they're not nailed down. Um, they're not fixed essentially like a building would be, um, effectively the income is gone and therefore the value is gone. Remember from a commercial perspective, um, the income is where the value of the site is. If you've got, um, if you've got a, basically, a, 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 a if you're trying to get a commercial mortgage and um, they have, the commercial lender essentially is, is valuing the site based on the income that it generates to a certain degree. There are various different ways in which you can you can look at this, and commercial valuations are basically it's like a it's it's, it's harder to work out than getting a, a physics degree. I'm pretty certain, but um, that's how it's kind of worked out. So, but it's also going to be based on kind of fixed assets where you know these hoardings effectively can be taken down quite easily. I think that's where where we would struggle. You can get bridging finance to acquire land without planning permission on it. Um, which might be a route that you'd look to go down. However, we still need our exit strategy for that bridging loan. We still need to have a lender that can pay or a way of paying that, that lender back, essentially. So it's massively, massively important to make sure that we have that in place. So I think the answer to uh, Duraj's question here is, um, yes, you can probably get some finance for it. Is it are, are you gonna be limited? Yes. Are you gonna be able to get a standard mortgage? Probably no. Are you going to be able to get a commercial mortgage? I would say it's very, very low. The only kind of funding you're probably going to get is some kind of short-term finance, which will involve you needing to have an exit strategy for it. So trying to think out loud whilst, because uh, I think that's the first time anyone's ever asked me that question, question ever. So this is why I love these, uh, love these Q&As, because I literally just get asked um, a million and one weird and wonderful questions that I would normally never, ever come across. Um, and it really helps me because the more I know what you guys are thinking and asking, the the easier my job becomes in terms of actually creating content that you're going to be interested. In. So, um, so thank you so much for the for the weird and wonderful questions, um, Aaron Knightley. Welcome, Aaron. Aaron's got a, a fantastic um, uh, event coming up in um, in May. I think it is nineteenth of May. I think off the top of my head, um, which uh, which is going to be down in South London. So hit on the click on Aaron's. Um, click on Aaron's little face in there take it to take you to his uh, profile um, and uh, and you'll be able to book to, to go along to this event some great speakers it is on the 19th yeah um, I'll be there so if you want to say hi in person that's a good opportunity um, I should probably let people make people more aware of some of the events that I'm actually going to because I get people all the time saying oh when can we meet up in person um, and I'm sort of like well I'm pretty busy um, a phone call should be so it should be good enough um, or maybe even a zoom call but um, I know it's nice to meet people in, in, in person meet them face to face so um, so yeah I will be attending Aaron's event on the 19th of May um, I'll also be at the property developers network um, in Birmingham at Edgebaston Golf Club on the 26th 
of April. Uh, they're the only things I think I've got in the diary at the moment. There are a couple of other bits and bobs coming up. Um, I'll be in Mayfair on the 5th of May at the Savoy Properties event. Um, so I think they're the only three I've got for the next couple of months. But um, but yeah, looking to get a few more bits and bobs in the diary. Um, so don't forget, guys, if you want to ask me a question, make sure you stick it into the question box down here so I can bring it up on the screen as I have with... Um, with Duraj's uh, one here, uh, because it means that I don't, what I don't want is basically someone coming in halfway through me answering the question, and I have no concept, no context for what we're actually discussing. If you've got the question here in front, it means that everyone can, can see it nice and easy. So if you do have a question, um, please make sure you put it into the question box so then I can, I can actually add it up on here. Um, so I think Duraj's question was the only one we've currently got in there. Um, because I don't think my questions was my question from from uh, stories is working for those of you that come come on the, uh, the live video pretty frequently you'll know that I usually uh, answer the questions from my stories first and foremost the problem that we've we've had I think is today Instagram has not fed it through so it, it means that um, some people if you're watching this and you're hoping your, your question was going to get answered Instagram hasn't pulled those those questions through annoyingly today, so I've got no idea um, what what's going on there, and I haven't got those questions in front of me. But if you're watching, you are put a question into my stories um, earlier on. Stick it in the question box down below, and I will get through it today. So let's get on to the next question, uh, which is from um, the General's Grill, um, which is: Can a buy to let mortgage be used to rent to a LHA? So that's a Oh, I've lost, uh, lost my trailer for LHA. So that's a housing a housing association. Thumbs up, housing association. Um, so if that's the case, um, then if it isn't, then let me know what you're calling LHA. I'm thinking that's housing association. Um, so let's start with that. the answer to that question then. Can you use a buy-to-net mortgage to rent to a um, housing association? Um, the answer is no, you can't. Um, basically, well, you can-ish, yeah, local housing association, that's what I thought. So, um, thanks, General. Um, so, no, you can't, but you, you kind of can, but let, let's explore that a little bit more. So, when you're renting a, um, a property to a local housing association or supported living provider or, 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 um, um, or a, a sort of a, well, it's something like Serco, which is like a, yeah, yeah, local housing authority, yeah. So, when any of these types of um, of organisations, um, social housing providers, you um, generally speaking, so what type of mortgage you actually get will be dependent on how that property is going to be filled, essentially. So, if that social housing provider, that local housing authority, local housing housing association is going to be filling that one property with one family unit, then we can look at. Um, doing it on a on a standard buy-to-let mortgage. However, um, it will have to be written into the contract, the lease that you have with them, that that is gonna be the case throughout the, the term of the of the of the lease. You, it can't be sort of swings and roundabouts. If you look at a lot of these leases, it will specify in there that um, they effectively have free reign to 
fill that property as they see fit. And that's actually something that lenders don't particularly like. They, they like that to be very specific as to how that property is gonna be filled. More often than not, I find, the local housing authority, what they will do is they will fill that property with multiple individuals. So you're gonna get people coming in and out all the time. So you might have five bedrooms in there all filled with five individuals. Now, even though they uh, that would not count as an HMO from a local uh, authority perspective, a lender is going to see that as being an HMO because it's a it theoretically is a house of multiple occupancy because there is multiple occupancy in that house. So they're going to want you to take out a HMO mortgage as a result of that. So that's the first thing okay so because one thing to be really really mindful of and i have spoken to loads of lenders about the prospect of actually looking at specific products for social housing mortgage basically a social housing mortgage at the moment there isn't there are serviced accommodation mortgages there are hmo mortgages there are single let mortgages but there are no social housing mortgages it's a criteria point, not a product, okay? So that's why the, the understanding how it's filled is so important because we then need to choose what products we're going for, single let or, or HMO. I mean, like I said, in most instances, it's gonna be HMO. We then need to look at um, the individual criteria of the, of the product we're going for, which in this instance is HMO. Now, if you look at all the lenders that do allow these types of leases on the, on the sort of more residential uh, mortgage market and when I say residential I'm talking not the commercial mortgage market um, most of these lenders will have a requirement for experience before they'll lend to you so they actually want to see that you've got at least maybe 12 to 24 months worth of landlord experience before they'll lend to you on an HMO mortgage because don't forget because we, we have to go for this particular product we also then have to adhere to the criteria of that very specific product if that makes sense so that's the next thing that we need to be be mindful of the other thing we also need to be mindful of is the lease itself now 99% of the time what lenders are going to be looking for is is this is the person or is the organization that you are le leasing this property to are they reputable that is a really really key terminology are they reputable now one way that they're going to determine whether this uh, organization is reputable is are they listed on the government's social housing provider register and you can find this really easily by going onto google and typing in government social housing provider register you will be uh, the link at the, the first link that comes up you click on that and it will take you through to a page on the government website where you can literally download the excel spreadsheet of this register it's done in alphabetical order but those of you that are techie and can can change it so that it's in order of other things, you can do it in order of postcode as well, which will allow you to have a look at some of the organizations in your investment area that you can then hopefully get in contact with and find out what their process is. Um, so that's very, very important. Now, one organization that's outside of this, uh, this list, which is Serco, S-E-R-C-O, they are a nationwide provider of social housing and probably the most famous and the one that my clients will use the most. They actually have a postcode ch uh, checker. So if you type in Serco postcode checker, you'll be able to find that on Google. Um, and so you'll actually be able to see where they are actually um, looking for property at the moment. Um, we will need to then get a copy of a draft lease. Now, if you're looking at the residential market, which is the cheaper part of the market, um, which is what we wanna try and achieve if we can, that market is limited to five years on one of these leases. Now, the standard Serco lease is seven years plus three years, i.e. 10 years. Um, so 
what we just need to do is if we want to try and access that part of the market, we need to contact Serco and say to them, can you can we please do this on a five year instead? I've not come across a situation where they've said no so far. There are some lenders within the market that will that will limit it to three years. I haven't so far had gone had to go down the, the route of having to ask my client to ask Serco to go down to three years. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question, whether they would do it or not. Maybe that's something for me to try and find out if I can. Um, so with the, the least length is also then majorly important. The next thing that we really um, we need to see is, is there um, is there a break clause? Is there a way for if the lender needs to repossess the property, then what what would happen um, to, you know, to, to the tenant? Can they actually break the, the lease at some point soon so they can get the property into an auction effectively and get themselves paid up? Um, so that's the next thing that we need to look at. Now, to make sure that we're not going in blind, we would always get a draft copy of the lease before we submit an application. My job as, as the broker is to find a shortlist of lenders that's suitable for you as the, as the client. And then what we will do is we'll get a copy of that draft lease and we'll send it to that shortlist of lenders for them to actually take that to their legal teams to make sure that they are comfortable with the parameters of that, um, that lease agreement. Now, most of the time, and we've had um, spitting gems, Sam. I think I'm not just, I'm just spitting. I think it might just be because I'm a bit snotty. Uh, <laughs> um, thanks, Diva. Um, so the 90% uh, of the time when we're sending these leases over to um, to lenders, what will happen is they will then um, come back to us and say whether they're comfortable with that lease or not. And as I said, 90% of the time, they'll actually let us know if they don't like something, they'll specifically let us know what it is and how to change it. Although I have to admit, I've had a situation recently with Shawbrook, who, uh, who I love Shawbrook to bits, great lender, but my God, can they be pernickety when it comes to, to leases? I've actually had to try and go back to them and say, right, what don't you like about this particular lease? And they've just said, there's this sentence we don't like. I said, okay, how do you want it to say? What are you comfortable with? Can't tell you that. Your lawyers, tell me what you like. Anyway, enough of that. Um, so, but 90% of the time they will come back and they'll be quite specific in terms of, you know, what they are happy with and what they're not. Um, so that means we can then feed that back to the social housing provider and say, um, Mr. Social Housing Provider or Mrs. Social Housing Provider, that's not me sexist here, what... Um, our prospective lender doesn't like this particular part. Can we please change it to X, Y, Z instead? And I'll be honest with you, most of the time they do it because ultimately it doesn't impact on their ability to rent the property from you. And that's all they're after. They're desperate for properties. I think we've got a huge deficit in this country in terms of um, social housing compared to the demand for that for said social housing. So it's a real problem area. I wish there were more lenders doing it. I speak to lenders all the time about them, you know, looking into this, speaking to their funding lines. I think it's a massive problem that we've got in this country, actually, where the funding lines are deemed to be so powerful when actually we've got more liquidity in our mortgage market than we've ever had in the history of the world ever. Um, and so this should really put the power in the, into the hands of the institutions that are able to have the mechanism to lend that money out. And they should be able to go back to their funding lines and say, well, actually, mate, um, I've, there's your ten a penny at the moment. So if you want to lend me, if you want me to lend this money out for you um, at a nice margin, you are going to have to uh, adhere to some of the changes in the criteria that we are, we're putting in place because we want access to more of the market. We want to carve out a little bit of market share in this particular area. Look, 
when you look at it, when you look at this compared to, you know, the residential market, you're never going to be getting Barclays and NatWest looking at this kind of stuff. But certainly more of the specialist buy-to-let market who are desperately trying to get a higher market share or, or carve out a niche for themselves, this is what they should be looking at. And it really pisses me off, to be quite honest with you, that these lenders aren't doing this. I, at least three times a week, I'll, I'll speak to a lender and just drop into conversation. So uh, when are you going to be lending on social housing? And they go, oh, I didn't know that was on the agenda. I was like, oh, well, it's not surprising because lenders don't know what, what investors want. Um, and it really grinds my gears. And they, they do rely, I think, on brokers such as myself. I think I'm on, last time I checked, I'm on three panels now. Um, three mortgage lenders, um, two, two bridging lender panels where um, they actually, on a monthly basis, contact me and ask me specifically about what's going on in the market, um, what they believe um, or what I believe they should be trying to implement in terms of criteria changes and all this kind of stuff. I like to feed that back. It's one of the reasons why I've got such big plans over the next couple of years to grow the team at Grand Union because as much as I, I love spending time talking to you guys and I'll never stop doing this uh, Monday Mortgage Melt, um, even if I have to do it on a Tuesday, um, one thing I want to do a lot more is actually be able to speak to lenders and really feed back to them what you guys are asking for because I do this live every single week. You guys ask me loads of questions. I know then what the market wants, what, what types of products people are really interested in. And the thing is, okay, look, the General's Grill has asked this very specific question. And, you know, they might be asking this because they think it's an interesting one that everyone would value um, an answer from. Or it could be that they just don't know what type of mortgage product would be suitable if they were going to rent their property out to a local housing association, which says to me, there's probably a large proportion of people out there that want to utilize this type of strategy, want to lend, um, sorry, want to lease their properties to these types of organizations. And they don't actually know how this works. And there could be a lot of people out there that are getting standard mortgages for, and then leasing, prop, leasing to, to organizations that they shouldn't be, and they would then be in breach of their mortgage contract. So this is obviously a part of the market that people are interested in. People, and I think it's massive. It's growing massively. Social. I've said this for the last eighteen months. Social housing and service accommodation are the two biggest growth areas in our market at the moment. They're not going to be taking overtaking HMO anytime soon. They're certainly not going to be overtaking buy to let probably ever. But they are still growth areas and new lenders. Well, actually, old lenders as well. They need to be looking into into these types of uh, strategies that you guys, the investors, are looking at because that's what that you know that's what actually will allow them to lend better and lend more and get that money out the door. Lenders are desperate to get money out the door because they've got so much of it right now. And I don't know how whether you guys know how this all works, but if a lender's got a funding line, they have organised for that funding to have that that money available to them. They're paying. They're basically paying a non-utilization fee to in also you know on a monthly basis to have that money sitting there ninety percent of the time. Okay, so any money that they don't get out the door, they're paying for. They want it out the door. If they're borrowing it at one percent per annum, they want to get it out the door at three percent, and they get the two percent difference. You know that's that's how lending works, and that that actually, by the way, guys. If you're interested in your economic history, is one of the big, big reasons that 12 odd years ago, um, the, the government had to bail out RBS because RBS are one of the big, big, big banks that will um, that will basically lend to 80 percent of the rest of the country in some way, shape or form. And if they didn't bail out RBS, our, our lending market could have been in real, real trouble. We we're already suffering from what we called the credit crunch at that time. And so, you know, obviously they really needed um, this particular lender 
to be continuing to fund the rest of the market, essentially. Um, Isaac said, I have social housing tenants and a few of mine, all great tenants and definitely stigma needs to change. So there are different social housing, um, not sure what that word is. <laughs> and I'm on the uh, lower risk side, yeah. So the thing is with this, right, is um, I say to, to lenders all the time, they say, oh, it's, um, there's, there's reputational risk here, okay? This is, this is the reason why lenders think they shouldn't be lending to social housing providers. So this is, so Isaac, the, the, the difference here is talking about social housing tenants, so DSS tenants, those, so you are, you're leasing your property direct to them, to leasing it to a social housing provider, a housing association, a local authority, an organization that is sitting there and they're, they're gonna, they're, they're the, they're the sort of the senior tenant and they're gonna be, or they're the, they're the junior landlord, if you like. They're then gonna basically fill that property themselves with, with individuals. Um, but lenders say it's reputational risk, okay? That's the issue that they have because they say, well, what happens if our client, the borrower, stops paying their mortgage and we need to repossess? We have then got to turf out onto the street vulnerable individuals. So my response to that is simply, why would that happen? And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, number one, they're getting guaranteed rent every month, no void periods, periods for five years. So the chances of them not paying you the mortgage is far reduced compared to, to, to a standard buy to let. And they're like, okay, I can see, I can see your point there. The second thing is, you, if you do need to repossess, who are you actually kicking out of that property? You're kicking out the um the, the social housing provider and then they go yeah but then in turn they're kicking out the uh, the other people yeah and then they're putting them straight into another property they're not chucking them onto the streets because as an organization it means they can actually they can take the responsibility to rehouse those individuals so it's actually less risky to there's less reputational risk in let in leasing to a social housing provider than there is in leasing it direct to dss tenants it's ridiculous but unfortunately, lenders are a bit stupid <laughs> and they don't seem to grasp this concept. Or maybe I'm not explaining it right. Guys, am I, am I explaining this right? I don't know. Um, but uh, for me, it's like, it's an absolute freaking no-brainer. Like, just they should just go for it. Anywho, um, as you can see, I get very passionate about this particular part of the market. I think it's huge. I think it's really important. And I don't think enough brokers are, are shouting from the rooftops about it. Maybe this is why I tend to uh, to get a lot of, uh, of calls about this type of thing. But always happy to have a chat about this particular project. What I have realised is I've probably been chatting about it for about 10 minutes when I've got other people's um, questions that I should really be answering. So um, the General's Grill, what an awesome question. Thank you very much. And Isaac, thanks for your comment as well. Really, really um, grateful for that. Yes, thanks guys for all the little hearts that I'm seeing popping up on the bottom right-hand corner. If you're loving this, please, please keep smashing that little uh, that little heart button because it helps me uh, get more people onto the live and gets more questions, gets more comments. Really, really helpful. If you're listening to this on the Game Alone's podcast and you're enjoying this, don't forget once you've finished to leave a five-star review, guys. So um, thank you very much. Let's get on to the next question, um, which is from Smooth Investments. Definitely very smooth. Um, if I have a buy-to-let already, but I've just sold my resi, residential home, will I get a mortgage on a contract that's only seven hours a week? Okay, so um, really, really good question here. So I think what we need to figure out here is, are we, we've got, we've got our buy-to-let property, which I assume Smooth Investments is um, is putting onto their um, 
uh, onto their tax return at the end of uh, each year. So, um, so we have got an income coming from there as well. Um, but we then also are trying to get, I presume, another residential mortgage, mortgage based on a contract that's only seven hours a week. Now, whether you're on seven hours, zero hours, 124 hours, like it feels like my, I, I work every week. I don't actually know how many days are in 124 hours. Uh, there might not even be, be that many um, days available. But anyway, um, it all comes down to affordability. All comes down to affordability. So the big difference between buy-to-let mortgages and residential mortgages is how much can you borrow and how is that worked out? Well, buy-to-lets we know are worked out on the, um, the income that the property generates, not yourself. Residential, old school. It's all about the affordability for you as an individual. How much is coming in each month? How much is going out each month? Whatever the surplus is, between the two, um, that that is basically the available cash that you've got to pay your mortgage. Is that enough? Most lenders will want you to have a little bit of a surplus on top of that, even when we factor in what your monthly mortgage payment's gonna be, which is why with a lot of lenders, the longer the term, the more affordable it actually is because your monthly mortgage payments are lower. This is one of the reasons why we thought that the increase in the in the Bank of England base rate recently, three bank, three increases recently actually, and probably more to come if I'm completely honest with you, um, is, uh, is, is gonna have an impact on the affordability of the market should lead to less buyers in the market, depending on what newspaper you read, that's either happening or not happening because um, the number of transactions in our property market since the beginning of the year has decreased rapidly. And we've got a one school of thought, which is that there are fewer buyers out there because mortgage rates have gone up and therefore people's affordability is lower and people are, are starting to lose faith in our property market at the moment or they're waiting out, waiting for this property crash to happen. Don't think it's happening anytime soon, peeps, just as an FYI. Um, but we've got the other side, which is actually to, uh, supply is the lowest it's ever been. And as a result, the supply and demand deficit is so bad, um, so big, you know, the biggest it's ever been, um, that that's the reason for the low transaction numbers. So it all very much depends on which school of thought, um, you know, you want to look at. And there, there seems to be, um, I mean, look, this... Uh, it very much depends on what what you you know your point of view what you want to portray as to what information you use and what resources you use to to show that what you're saying is true you know the evidence that you have so either side seems to have evidence um, I'll be honest I'm not really sure which one it is I tend to think that probably it's more to do with the the deficit side um, the you know the lack of stock rather than anything else and to be honest it's this lack of stock coupled with the um, coupled with the, um, the, you know, the huge liquidity that we've got in our current market um, and relative historically um, low interest rates for mortgages at the moment, which is keeping pushing our market up. I think we had an, another, this last month, we had another new record average property price in the UK, which suggests to me that actually it's more to, um, you know, there's more lack of stock than there is um, lack of interest. I think there's still huge interest in our market. I'm getting calls every single day for people that want to buy properties and have had their um, their offers accepted. So, um, yeah, it's a, um, it's, we're, we're still on an upward trajectory, I believe. I think it's slowing. I think I'm starting to see that the interest rate increase is starting to have an effect. And certainly lenders are putting their pricing up. And I think one more might be the tipping point potentially to get it to a point where, um, you know, we've got, 
um, we start seeing a major difference and a bit of a stagnation in the market that everyone's kind of kind of predicting. Um, but anyway, I've gone way off on on uh, on this this particular question. Let's get back to it. If any of you have got questions, by the way, I see a few people chucking stuff in the comments. Please use the question box down here at the bottom right hand corner um, because I will lose your question as I'm answering these ones. Um, and I've got a few others that are in the uh, in the queue. So get them down there. I can bring them up on the screen and everyone can see. Um, and uh, everyone can see the question as I'm answering it. So getting back to smooth investments, um, it's all down to affordability, guys. So um, even if you're only working seven hours, it's all about what your monthly expenditure versus your monthly income is and what your surplus is. And do lenders believe that that is affordable to you? Now, there is um, a few... Uh, chitter chatters in the uh, in the industry, a few whispers that we might be getting away from the affordability model and back to an income multiple model, um, which I think a hybrid of the two would probably be a really good way to go. Lenders are still talking about income multiples, but the reality is that the FCA has instigated a, an affordability model, which is all based on your surplus income. So it takes expenditure into account as well, because in my mind, if you earn 100 grand and someone else owns 100 grand, you've got no debt and they've got 50 grand's worth of debt. Um, you know, their surplus income is less than yours. So if it's just based on income multiples, why should they be able to borrow the same as yours? It, they're more vulnerable to not being able to pay that mortgage than you are. So I, that's, you know, that's just my, my thought. I'm, I, I'm quite risk averse when it comes to residential mortgages. I don't like people, the hearing stories of people being repossessed. I think that people overstretch themselves with residential mortgages because they believe that, you know, they have to get on the property market. You don't guys, anyone watching this or listening to this, you do not have to be a property owner to be a success in this life, okay? What the government have been telling us over the last, you know, couple of decades, you know, generation buy, you know, we're going to be building, we, we believe first-time buyers have a divine right to own property. No, no one has a divine right to own property. In fact, we go back a couple of hundred years and like a handful of people in the whole country owned property. They were called landowners. And that's where that term comes from. And then everyone that worked their land was given some place to stay. You know, that's that was that was the, uh, the feudal system that we we've morphed away from into the cap current capitalist system. But we still do not have a divine divine right to property ownership, guys. So do not overstretch yourself on your residential mortgage. In fact, go ten percent lower. I would look at it and say, right, okay, I'm going to work out my monthly mortgage at the moment would be a thousand pounds a month. What happens if my interest rate goes up by one percent? could I still afford this mortgage or would I be in, in serious trouble? And if the answer to that question is you would be in trouble, do not take out that mortgage. Take out a lower mortgage, save for a bigger deposit or buy a cheaper property. And if you can't buy a cheaper property in the area that you wanna buy in, move to a different area or rent. It's as simple as that, guys. Um, you know, don't don't overstretch yourself. Do not get yourself into a difficult situation because if you've got a repossession on your record, you know, that's you've done for a long, 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 long time. So never overstretch yourself. Always buy within your means. Um, that's, you know, if that's one thing you take away from this video, um, you know, please, please do so. It's so, so, so important. But hopefully I've answered that question for Smooth Investments. Um, SI, let me know if you've, uh, if that was, if that was good enough an answer for you. Um, guys, keep hammering that little heart button. Uh, makes me feel really great. <laughs> um, so Jay King has put, um, hi, what do you think regarding tokenization of properties um, and this way of investment? So I'm guessing that we're, so whenever we're talking about new technologies here, um, it's the difficulty that we have in certain markets is that they are very regulated. Um, so you may have seen recently 
that um, over in Australia, we had the first property transaction where, this, where the legals was conducted by a smart contract. Now, this is effectively um, an NFT, um, non-something token. What's the, what's the F stand for? Always forget. Anyway, basically, um, these are kind of ways of being able to transact information at mega speed very, very securely. And, um, and I'm really, really hoping that that really starts to, to we, we start to look at that in this country. I mean, there was even something, um, I think in the news today or yesterday, um, fungible, yeah, I, I, I struggle with saying words sometimes, um, is um, we had something come out recently where, you know, the, the, the British government or, or the, you know, um, the Bank of England have kind of been saying that we, they really want to start embracing cryptocurrency. In the UK, they want the UK to be a hub of cryptocurrency um, and that sort of stuff, which is great. But then the cynical amongst you might be thinking, okay, well, are they just doing this because, you know, they want to formulate new opportunities for taxation? That may well very, very well be the case. But also there are so many, um, you know, great opportunities for, you know, this type of blockchain um, technology because it is just so secure. Now, no matter what happens in the world, um, there is also always security risks, always security risks. Um, and, with, you know, with blockchain and, and with cryptocurrency, you know, there's no, no different. If someone wants to do something naughty, they will probably be clever enough to try and find a way um, at some point. So it doesn't matter whether, you know, you've got a Visa card, someone can bloody steal that and use that and they can they can forge your identity with that. And, and there's, there's going to be ways that, um, you know, there can be security breaches with crypto as well. And I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about. People fear the unknown, fear what they don't understand. And I don't think people understand crypto just yet. We don't understand, you know, how, um, you know, tokenization, how smart, um, smart contracts, the, you know, the blockchain, cryptocurrency, how this all kind of works now. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm actually doing as much uh, you know research as I possibly can. I'm looking into different ways that my business can utilize um, cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and and other things like that you know that could be a separate business for me at some point in the future um, because I'm always just looking at ways in which I can help people anyone here that is a business owner you have to constantly be looking at different ways that you can help people that is how you will be successful in the long run and I think that I think that the crypto and everything that surrounds this type of industry is um, is the future 100% is going to be the future anyone that thinks that you know Bitcoin Ethereum and various other cryptocurrencies are not going to be here for the long term. You probably need to take a long, long, hard look at yourself. Also, the kind of returns that you can get by investing in these types of things are, are humongous, but also they are a great risk because there are a lot of rug balls going out there as well. So do your research is what I, I suggest. Um, I am going to be launching a new show on my uh, YouTube account, a new live show called Show Me The Money, um, which is going to be all about non-property money related stuff. So um, raising finance, cryptocurrency, investing in the stock market, uh, trading, uh, FX trading. And we've got loads of people lined up. That um, I've even got an, an ex-British uh, and Irish Lions rugby international that's hopefully going to be coming on in June, July to talk about how he transitioned into, into starting his own business. Um, so everything to do with money is going to be discussed on this. It's not going to be like an every week thing. It's going to be an as and when I can get great guests on. Um, and that's going to be over on my YouTube channel. They're going to be live 
Q&As, live interviews. Um, and on there, I'm certainly hoping to get some big ass guests to talk about the blockchain, talk about crypto um, and all this type of space, because I just think it's so fascinating. Um, and it represents probably the biggest opportunity that we have seen in our in our generation um, for you know creating millionaires. There are now, I believe, 100,000 it's, I can't remember if it's Bitcoin millionaires or just crypto millionaires, but there are certainly a lot of people out there that have made their fortune now purely on cryptocurrency. And in fact, one of the biggest things that I see over the next sort of maybe five to 10 years is going to be those people that are making serious cash with crypto, because as we know, crypto is very volatile. What I think we're going to start seeing is people wanting to um to sort of spread their their investments a little bit more um, and potentially even use the cryptocurrency um, portfolios that they have as a lending mechanism to be able to uh, to then you know invest um, in in other maybe more stable um, parts of the of the of the market so they can uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for can't think of the word I'm looking for but basically um, open up their investments a little bit more and not just be you know, pigeonholing to just crypto, but utilizing um, utilizing the crypto portfolio they have as a security for lending, which will be you know one two three percent or whatever, and then they can invest that elsewhere and get seven or eight percent. And you know, it's uh, it's going to be a great opportunity there. Watch this space. Maybe you might be seeing something coming your way. Uh, where we'll be looking at how that can be organised at some point soon as an offshoot of Grand Union Finance. So yeah, we will uh, we'll have a look at that soon. But. Jay King, I've got no idea if I answered your question or not, to be quite honest with you. Um, hopefully I gave you my point of view about all this kind of stuff. Um, but certainly I think that um, utilising this kind of uh, this kind of technology in the property market is going to be hard because I think um, because this is this is an industry that is built on very old fashioned foundations um, and there's pros and cons to that. The regulation is the probably the highest it is in the world, but that means that we've got the safest property market in the world. So I'm not sure I'd like to, you know, give away some of that security for some speed, but there are certainly some some things that we can implement, like um, uh, these kind of um, smart contracts that potentially can speed it up whilst implementing an even a higher level of security. Uh, Jaking, thanks so much. Brilliant. We'd like to sponsor a YouTube channel. If it is possible, we'll be contacting you in regards to this. That sounds awesome. Always happy to, to get good quality people on board. Um, yeah, if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel, by the way, guys, anyone listening or watching, uh, just type my name, Sam Norris, uh, like spelt like Chuck Norris or Lando Norris, or if you're old-fashioned enough, Stephen Norris, who was the transport minister about 30 years ago. Um, I only know that because my dad's called Steve Norris. Um, <laughs> um, go and check that out. Um, there's like... I think we're even closing in on 200 videos on there. Um, so yeah, go and check that out, guys. Um, and anyone that wants to ask me any questions regarding sponsoring this video, regarding sponsoring the YouTube channel, regarding sponsoring the Game Alone's podcast, you just let me know. I am all ears when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, so cool. Look, we're running out of time a little bit. So let me just check and see if we've got any more questions that I haven't answered just yet. I think one more we've got is from Asim. Um, what are the requirements to add a guarantor to a resi mortgage to boost how much I can borrow? Great question, Asim, to finish us off for the evening. So just to give you some context to what Asim is asking here, a guarantor is somebody that is not going to be the borrower. Um, adding some weight to 
the application for um, for a new residential mortgage. So basically what this means is that you might have mum or dad come as a guarantor because you need to borrow 500 grand, but your affordability means that you can only get to about 450. Well, adding your dad on as a guarantor, your mum on as, as, as a guarantor, means that we can take into account a little bit of their income and they can basically guarantee the mortgage. So they, so Barclays Bank or NatWest or whoever it might be could actually turn around um, and say, um, okay, well, look, if there is a, um, if there's a, uh, you know, a period of time where, you know, we might have to repossess, you know, are you happy to, to put your name on the line to guarantee this mortgage? And it adds that extra level of security for the lender that or that extra level of comfort that you are not going to lose, um, you're not going to not be able to repay this mortgage. So basically, it's a way of beefing up your ability to get a little bit more of a higher loan. Now, before I go into this, let's have this little caveat about what I spoke about earlier on. If you, you know, don't overstretch yourself, peeps, please don't overstretch yourself. I got into trouble on uh, Ranjan's, uh, for any of you who know Ranjan, who is the um, the guy that hosts the Baker Street property meet. Um, I was on a clubhouse, one of his clubhouse rooms about a year and a half ago when um, Rishi Sunak was talking about these 95% loan to value mortgages. Um, and I was saying in the market at the time, there was a lot of risk um, and he absolutely shot me down. I still maintain, I like Rajan, I think he's a nice guy and he, he obviously knows his shit. But he shot me down and I I still maintain to this day that it was wrong of him to do so because I was talking about the risks that in, this involved in, you know, in a market that can go down as well as up, you know, basically leveraging yourself to 95% of the value of a property at a, at a time when the market was the peak it's, it had ever been, okay? Um, and at the time, lots of people were predicting that the market was going to go down last year, that suddenly we were talking about 95% loan to value mortgages, not because of negative equity, because negative equity, you know, that happens when the, the amount you have outstanding on your mortgage is above what the value of the property was. I didn't I didn't see that we were gonna have a 5% reduction in the market last year, as I don't think we will do this year. Um, but it doesn't need to go down 5% for you to get yourself in trouble. Let's say you've got a 95% loan to value mortgage um, and the market drops by 2%. You come to refinance your property and it's worth 2% less than what you paid for it. You would have had to have paid off 2% of your mortgage in order to then be able to refinance back onto another 95% loan to value mortgage. And there's no guarantee at that point that you're actually going to be able to afford the same mortgage that you got the you know the last the last time around because interest rates have gone up. Interest rates have gone up. The amount you have to pay per month has gone up because the interest rate is higher. Therefore, your affordability may no longer stick at 95%, which means you're going to have to, you're struggling to get a 95% mortgage, which means you have to go to 90%, which means you've got to pay down 5% of your mortgage in order to get onto a 90% loan to value mortgage. And the alternative is you sit on the standards, uh, on the, the lender's standard variable rate, and that might be 5%. You're quick, you are very quickly going to get yourself into, um, into into this into a really really bad situation okay guys so um enough of me talking about that because i can see a seam's gone come on sam get back to the point i've asked you a question you're absolutely right um so apologies a seam please explain based on if a guarantor is a stable established business versus individual on the salary so the guarantor it will be an individual when it's a residential mortgage it's going to be it's going to be an individual it's going to be based on their income or their income can be taken into account okay so um 
your, your income will still be taken into account, but theirs will be taken into account as well to kind of boost up how much you can uh, you can borrow. If that person is self-employed or employed, it doesn't make any difference. It, they'll still be subject to the same kind of affordability um, uh, sort of calculations that a lender is gonna is gonna be doing as normal on yourselves as well. So it's just it's just adding another income into the equation, essentially a scene, if that makes sense. I think that's the simplest way that I can put it, um, is that essentially it just adds more beef to your um to the income side of things. They're still gonna take into account your expenditure, but they can take into account the uh, the income that a guarantor can also put on the table to basically say, as I said right there at the top of this, we uh, we're guaranteeing uh, this mor this mortgage for you. Um, does a guarantor need to own their own home? Um, I think it helps. Um, I must admit, guys, I don't do a ton of residential mortgages. So, although I am in the process of bringing on a residential mortgage specialist at the moment, so maybe I'll get him on on a, on a on a future um, a future episode. We can do a residential mortgage special. Um, but my, I would, I would, I've not come, do you know, what? I've not come across it. I've not come across a, a situation where a lender has asked or where a guarantor hasn't been a homeowner. Um, so I'm assuming that it would be, I reckon that they would need to be um, a residential uh, homeowner. So um, yeah, Danny, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to make an educated guess that I believe that they should be. Yeah. So there we go. Um, so Asim, hopefully that answers your, your question. Um, I know I went off, veered off onto a bit of a tangent there, but as you know, I like to chat. I like to talk about this kind of stuff and I find it all rather fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you are looking to get a residential mortgage and you can't quite afford what you feel you need to get a property in your area, you've got to think about two things. One, can you get a guarantee tour on board? Or two, should you get a guarantor on board? Don't overstretch yourselves. Um, basically, the uh, the affordability calculators are there for a reason. Lenders are are restricted, but to put those in place by the FCA because the FCA does not want repossessions, and lenders don't want repossessions either. So they put these affordability calculators in place to ensure that it's very unlikely that you are not going to be able to keep up repayments on your mortgage, and therefore uh, you're not going to get repossessed. So. Just bear that in mind, guys. Don't ever stretch yourself. Your residential mortgage is going to be the highest liability you're ever likely to take out in your life. So let's try and keep it to a minimum and let's try and be um, as cautious as we can when it comes to this kind of stuff. Buy to let mortgages, bridging loans, all that kind of stuff. That's business, you know, that people are going to be paying for that. You know, you're, you've got uh, processes in place. You're analyzing projects to make sure that it all works. That's very, very different. A residential mortgage, you're the only person paying that. So let's make sure you can afford to do so for the foreseeable, even with interest rates rising, as they probably will do by another probably 1% over the next 12 months. I would not be surprised if we are having this chat in April 2023 with the Bank of England base rate being above one5 maybe even 1.75%. In fact, you know what? I really wouldn't be even surprised if it was 2% by that point. But anyway, it, uh, it all very much depends what happens over the next few months, whether the, whether the, uh, the government gets a handle of this uh, cost of living crisis that we're going through at the moment. I'm really hoping that uh, hostilities in the Ukraine are going to subside a little bit as the uh, the world seems to get their economic stranglehold on, on Russia, which looks like that's starting to have uh, a positive impact, um, not only on saving lives in the Ukraine, but also on uh, on some of the issues that the the Western world is having as a as a result of the breakdown in that supply chain. So um, we'll see how things go. Um, I think the future is bright, uh, but that's because I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Um, really hoping that that conflict subsides very very soon, if not just for the loss of life, but also to help 
um, us survive over the next uh, 12 months or so. But guys, I think that's the last question um, that we've got. So thank you so, so much for um, for being patient with me. I think I've done okay to get through today's live. I'm probably going to need a lie down. Well, I'm actually driving down to London this evening. So happy days. Might need to get a, a, a red bull in me uh, before I jump in the car this afternoon. Um, but thanks so much. It really does mean a lot to me that we've had, you know, probably over the course of this video, 50 odd people that have come on, um, shared some comments, shared some questions. Hopefully this has been massively, massively helpful. If you're watching this live, um, please, please, after this, if, you've, if there's anything else that you want to discuss, send me a direct message um, to uh, to my, obviously my, my Instagram page, at the Sam Norris. If you're listening to this on the podcast, um, go over and follow um, my Instagram page, at the Sam Norris. I do this usually every Monday at 5 p.m. Today is a little bit different because I was really, really sick yesterday and I didn't want you guys seeing me looking looking ill. Um, I always want to be trying to look my best for you lot. Um, so as I said, thanks for joining me today. It's been awesome. Really, really cool questions today, actually. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I will be back on Monday for the Monday Mortgage Mail episode 86. Hopefully you guys will join me then. See you then. Bye. Yep, that's it. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other Game of Loans podcast episodes, please, I would ask you a massive favor to leave a five-star review. It massively helps me grow the podcast and reach more people that will hopefully enjoy the episodes as much as you have. Thank you so much in advance for this, and I'll hopefully see you on the next episode.